I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, 60 Minutes first went to air in Australia over four decades ago. Gerald Stone, the man who built its success and made the ticking clock an institution, died recently. What few people know is that in 1978, Darren Hinch turned down an offer to join George Negus and Ray Martin as one of the program's globe-trotting reporters. For Hinch, 60 Minutes is the one that got away. Mr Hinch, welcome to That's Life. Thanks, mate. One of the uh, enduring TV programs on Australian television has been 60 Minutes. Mm-hmm. Started, I remember when it started. That's it. I know people who get uh, anxious when they hear that tick, 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 tick. Cause it's <laughs> Sunday night and they have to go to school or go to work the next morning. And have, <laughs> it signaled the end of the weekend. Gerald Stone was the first chief of that program. Yeah. Kerry Packer apparently told him, I don't care how much it costs, I want it to work. Mm-hmm. So that was his. But it was based on a program uh, in it's, the United it's, it's States. a total copy of 60 Minutes in America uh, with Mike Wallace and people like that. Um, I know a fair bit about it, probably most more than most. Let me just precede that by saying for younger people, wouldn't understand what 60 Minutes actually meant in Australia for a long time. Uh, I used to have a farm up at Mount Macedon, right? And Jackie and I would make the decision, do we drive home and watch 60 Minutes or do we watch it here and then drive home? I mean, that was just Sunday night. You would not miss 60 Minutes. You made a decision. You couldn't miss it. And it was. And this is part of um, Gerald Stone's philosophy that he wanted you to be talking about it around the water cooler, not only next day, but next week. You know? Did you see what they said on 60 Minutes? Did you see what they did on 60 Minutes? Now, they, I, I remember it started in 1978, uh, and the very first program was about illegal cigarettes, Chop Chop, which they're still doing now, all those years later. And why I know so much about it, and people deny this, but I can prove it, the original, two of the original reporters were George Negus and Ray Martin. The third one became Ian Leslie. It was meant to be Darren Hinch. <laughs> I had just arrived in Melbourne to do um, 3X Roy, Foist and Oin, Foyn and Moyled, and uh, I got a call from the then producer of one of the producers of 60 Minutes called uh, Gerald Stone was the executive producer this was called Peter Meekin who not only became a huge name in, in his own right uh, and he called me and offered me the job and I, I didn't have a contract with 3XY but I had a handshake and it was the biggest regret of my life probably I one of them I, I turned him down I thought I had a moral obligation to stay at 3XY and uh, ironically um the radio station, I'd just gone broke, and the radio station was offering me more money than 60 Minutes was. And the radio station, I think, was paying me 60000 a year. Peter Meek had offered me $700 a week. This is in 1987. was still good money. Uh, and the reason why I mention it is because George Negus didn't believe that, that I was going to be number three, right? Until one day we are in, uh, in, in Sydney having a drink together, years later, and I said, George... How much were you earning when you first started 60 Minutes? He said, I'm not going to tell you. I said, you were earning $700 a week. He said, how do you know? 
I said, that's exactly the amount that Peter Meekin offered me too, Sunshine. And he suddenly realised that, yes, it had been a legitimate thing. And then, then of course, Ian Leslie came in, then Young Event came in. and uh, Well, the idea was to send these guys all over the world. Mm. You know, in 1978, travelling around the world for yeah. television wasn't really that done that often. And it, and it cost a fortune. I mean, I've travelled with Sunday Night when I was there a few years ago, which is Channel 7's equivalent of 60 Minutes. And the money it costs, because you've got a crew, you've got you, you've got, you know, and I was flying business class or first class everywhere, and uh, it, and Kerry did say, I don't care what it costs. And the early ratings weren't that good. People weren't used to it, uh, but they, uh, uh, but, and it also got challenged a bit by Peter Luck in this fabulous century at one stage from memory. But um, they looked, they did great stuff. I And George Fungus, as they used to call him, uh, they became huge names in Australia. Still, Ray Martin is still a huge name in Australian television. Well, he was a good mate of yours because yeah. you went back to your foreign correspondent days. Yeah, yeah, we did. You? We both worked in New York against each other years ago. And then we both got inducted to the Hall of Fame t- on the, together, which one year, a couple of years ago, and we're inducted together in the same night. And he introduced me and I introduced him. It was just... It was beautiful. It was beautiful. The idea was to get someone who was a well-known Australian to be at places where news was happening. My my eternal memory of George Negus is him crouching down with a jacket over his shoulder, doing a piece to camera in some war zone somewhere. Yeah. Uh, that was it. I well, mean, that was the idea. It was. But the, the, look, this may be apocryphal, and I apologise, George, if it is, um, but the old George Negus with his thumb hooked into his jacket uh, collar and walking with it over his shoulder. He supposedly once sent a cab back to his hotel room to get his jacket because he wanted to a, he wanted to do a walking stand-up <laughs> and he didn't have a jacket. <laughs> there's this, there's this you know, a, a weird nigger story. Here's a weird one. I was in his hotel room one day. We are going out for dinner. And he's sitting there with a legal A4 you know, pad. And I said, what are you scribbling? Where's your typewriter? And he said... I can't type. It it floored me. I mean, as a journo who's been you know, touch typing since you're 15, uh, to to meet a journo who couldn't type, I thought was he worked in newspapers, didn't he? Because he's think, from yeah, Brisbane. Well, he, he, I know he studied as a priest at one stage. He then did, he went yeah, to newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know he was uh, Lionel Murphy's press secretary That's right. at one stage because they raided ASIO in the 70s. Yeah. And he was out the front dealing with the media in that. Uh, and he was, I think he was also there at the time when uh, when Whitlam took over and he he cancelled conscription for Viet- Vietnam and let people out of jail. You know, and I think George was heavily involved in that too. The reason we're talking about sixty minutes is because recently Gerald Stone, uh, this oh. great icon, American guy, born in America, studied in America, he had that American accent, but uh, he he passed away at the age of ninety. Uh, yeah, so he, he had a big life. Um, he did. I'll never forget him. You know why? He sacked me. <laughs> I mean, he's one of the many people. <laughs> he's one of the 16, <laughs> yeah. He, well, he, he came in as suddenly brought in by, in Sydney, by by the Scase's people, the replacements to Scase. Um, and uh, he got their ear, and he was suddenly head of news and current affairs for Channel 7. And he brought in a guy called Peter Charlie who's now the head of Al Jazeera and got involved in that stuff with One Nation a while ago. Anyway, so Gerald Stone and Peter Charlie come in and the one thing that Gerald couldn't stand 
was the fact that he's running news and current affairs for seven. But down in Melbourne, there's Hinch, who's executive producer of his own program. So he had no input, no say, no control. And I'm sure that bugged him like hell. And it When he to- sacked you, yeah. he sacked you face to face? No. No, what happened was, uh, no, um, Bob Campbell sacked me face to face in Sydney when I was up there. A day after I've been told that, no, all those rumours are bullshit, you know, you're safe. Because I fronted them because uh, Ann Sanders, who's a g- gorgeous lady and a, and a great newsreader, she's still doing Channel 7 now out of Sydney. She's been at National, so she's been doing it for years. I hardly knew her. I knew her as a colleague, that's all. But she phoned me in Sydney, in Melbourne and said, Darren, I don't know how to put this or if I should tell you this, but there's a young bloke up here back from Canberra called Stan Grant who's telling people in the newsroom that he's replacing you with a new show. And I said, well, that's news to me, but thanks for telling me. As I said earlier, I also should have realised that wardrobe ladies know before you do because suddenly your new suits for next year suddenly haven't turned up, haven't been ordered, so they know that you're on the way up. But I found out much, much later, and a bit of this is um, concerned, Stan Grant, it's a bit uh, unseemly, uh, I found out, years later, that a guy called Bruce Guthrie, who was the editor of The uh, the Age, uh, uh, I think he worked for Murdoch as well, and uh, an author and a writer, very good journo. Wrote a book about Murdoch. Yeah, yeah. And Bruce Guthrie uh, told me years and years later that, unbeknownst to me, he'd been out of the blue flown to Sydney for and, and did um, screen tests on the floor of Channel 7 in the middle of the night so we wouldn't get wind of it, to replace me as the, the head of, uh, of the Hinch program, a new program. And he said, I had several runs at it. I was a print journal like you, and suddenly I'm going to be on television. And he said, Gerald Stone flew me back up to Sydney one day. He and Peter Chai and I had this huge, lengthy dinner at some Italian restaurant where all the Channel 7 people went to. And he said like good luck and cheers and it's all on. He said, no, I never heard again. And one day I, I bumped into Stone or I ring Ronnie or something. And I said, what happened? And, and Guthrie told me, he said, Stone said, ah, oh, sorry, mate. We decided to give the ABO a go. Mm. And Stan yeah. Grant got the job and that's, they called it uh, today, tonight. That's, that's, that is just terrible. <laughs> Uh, Darren, um, Gerald Stone once said that his, his biggest regret was sending uh, two journo, well, one was a cameraman, I think, and one was a journo, to East Timor in 1975, where uh, oh, yeah. Australians died. Brian Peters, Malcolm Rennie, Greg Shackleton, and Tony Stewart, they made a movie about it, mm. Balibo. Yeah, Terrible it, it was, period and, uh, in and, Australian and his, history. And Shackleton's wife... She campaigned for years over that. I mean, she, the government here treated the families of those dead journos. They treated them like dirt. You know, like they didn't want to upset the Indonesian government. And those men were murdered. And the movie, Lapalio, uh, Lapalio, Tony Lapalio was, was Anthony Lapalio. Anthony Lapalio yeah. was in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and did a, it was a very good job. There's also a guy called Roger, Roger East was killed on the docks in East Timor at the same time and he doesn't get the uh, the credit that he is due but it was a ter- it was a terrible time and, and, and our governments 
did not uh, did not do well out of that. One of the journos who worked on 60 Minutes is uh, another guy, famous, Richard Carlton. Mm-hmm. He had a famous interview with Bob Hawke. Immediate, Blood on your hands. Yes, immediately the day, I think, the, the night uh, that uh, Bob Hawke replaced Bill Hayden, uh, the drover's dog, mm-hmm. uh, and he had that interview and Hawke fired up. Mm because uh, Richard Carlton accused him of having blood on his hands hands. and Hawke in that Hawke way got narky and said, you're impertinent, you you got a reputation for that and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Carlton was fantastic. He he died uh, during the mine disaster in, in Tasmania. Remember that? He, uh, yeah. He had a heart attack and died. Uh, in fact, he almost died on camera because yes, he yeah, asked but... a question and mm. it was, you know, he had this way of asking mm. razor-sharp mm. questions and then he appeared to move away and then he collapsed yeah. off camera. I remember Tracy Grimshaw telling us how she was there and suddenly just Richard, I mean, he was just, I mean, he was very well-respected and very good journal and suddenly just collapsed. And, and nobody could, people there couldn't believe. We couldn't believe when we when the word word started to come mm, through about mm. it. He was he was an amazing character in that he always like the guy out of Scoop. He always travelled well. He'd always take a briefcase full of gourmet foods and caviar and pate and stuff like that. He he was renowned for being. I mean, I mean, I was known as sometimes as a uh, you know. A, being a bit of market like that, but he he was he was in a league of his own. Well, some of the interviews he did from Canberra on uh, on not this date and night. This date and night was previous. Mm. The seven thirty report yeah. uh, were, were were some of the best political interviews you would hear anywhere. He went straight to the point. He asked hard questions. He didn't back down, and he had this smirk this wonderful smiling smirk yeah. when like, i said, don't believe you yeah was that i come on i don't believe you the, the other one of course was willisy and phil davis was his producer and Will, davis taught willisy the art of not saying anything now carlton was bring bring in there willisy learned that on television when you're not saying something something's still going on so if you just shut up and if you ask a question and they don't answer it, the camera's on their face. And just the silence can damn somebody. And people tend to want to fill the silence with something. Yeah, they do. Yeah, so, so they'd be finding themselves saying things that they probably didn't mean to say because exactly. they're filling the, uh, See, the silence. On radio, as you know, uh, it doesn't work that way because on television, something's happening. You're still seeing a photo. On radio, if there's silence, there's just silence. So the host has to jump in and either re-ask the question or ask another one. You've interviewed many people, Darren. What was the way you went around doing things with an interview? Um, was preparation a big thing for you? No, no I just... I, no, I didn't, didn't... No, it wasn't actually. Uh, the one trick I did pull uh, often was I'd say to somebody, look, one final question, right? And you almost see them go... <sighs> I've got through it. I'm out of here. And then you ask five more questions. You say, one final question, did you kill your wife? You know, but by, you could almost hear them exhale out of gratitude that they got through the whole lot, you know. And most journos, good journos, you know the answer to the question you're asking. It's like Royal Commissions, you know. Commissioners, they, they don't ask a question unless they know the answer. So you know where you, where you, what track you're going down. If you're leading somebody down a track, you know where the track ends. And they may not know that you know 
but that's that's part of it. The hardest people to interview, the hardest one for me was John Halfpenny, who was a union boss years and years ago. And he was hard because he never stopped talking. He could talk on the exhale as well as the inhale. So he didn't draw, usually when they draw a breath, you jump in, right? But he could somehow just, brrr, the words just kept coming out. The <laughs> like other playing one, a didgeridoo. Yeah. You're breathing in and out yeah. and sound's and the, still and the, coming out. The up. other one, the worst one was, I've said this before, was Malcolm Fraser because he would just filibuster. He would take so long to answer one question. He'd just, you know, just go on and on and on. And if you tried to, it, but, 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 Mr. Prime Minister, he'd, he'd just talk over you and talk you down. Do you have one interview that stands out or that you feel uh, you got the better of you or you got the better of them or, or, or something? Well, the one that... was when, when after Fraser wouldn't speak to me for three years, we were talking this before, um, he finally came on the program. And it was David Barnett, we were talking about the other day. David Barnett. He was his PR right. man, uh, his brother of Peter Barnett, the uh, ex journo, late journo. Um, and Fraser finally came on, and David Barnett sat on the floor holding up little cue cards for Fraser, for answers. I had an early night the night before, didn't have a drink. Now, when he was doing that, Darren, <laughs> did you think to say, well, we're in a studio here, ladies and gentlemen. I should have. I, I think you should know that we've got the Prime Minister here and his, his mm. uh, assistant is holding signs up and these are the signs. Yeah, and, but there were TV cameras on this, taking it, and I was amazed by it. But Fraser beat me that day. He just filibustered me. And that's where the uh, shame, shame, shame line came from because we were arguing about Cambodia and the fact that Australia had... Uh, were recognising Pol Pot to, to appease China. In the United Nations, we supported the recognition of Kampuchea and Pol Pot, even though they'd killed nearly two million people. And I said to Fraser, this is terrible. I mean, how can we still recognise Pol Pot after he's killed 1.9 million people? And Fraser looked down that... that um, Easter Island Easter nose Island nose of his and said, well, that's the way it is. That's why... And that's when I said, well, Mr. Prime Minister, shame, Australia, shame. And that became Visard's shame, 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 which I've been, I've been shattered with ever since. Uh, looking back, uh, uh, Australia was a sexist society. Uh, I mean, Yana Vent joined 60 Minutes. Mm. Three men and then her. Even uh, the three males, Negus, Martin and Leslie were against her joining 60 mm. Minutes because they didn't think she'd paid her dues enough. That's that right. She was a she news reader. She didn't deserve journal. her job. You mentioned Tracy Grimshaw. Back in the 70s and, and prior to that, women didn't read news. No. Uh, well, they did late 70s and 80s because Annette Allison, who I used to go Well, she would have been the first one, she, but she, prior to that... She, she, was, she, was, she was down here on Channel O, as it was then called. Um, well, I made one huge mistake on 3AW when Yana Vink got the job as newsreader on on Channel O and then Channel 10. I nicknamed her Nonna as a non-event. <laughs> and then from there, she went on to 60 Minutes and then Current Affair, and she's one of the most successful journalists we've ever seen. Yeah, but can you believe the angst that there was back oh, then? Oh, well, look, when, when Kate Fitzpatrick got a job, Packer put her in there in the World Series cricket. Oh, well, as at a the cricket, I, I understand that angst. I'm, I'm, I'm a cricket fan. I don't think she knew cricket like 
what we've got now is female test cricketers who have retired who are now commentating. I mean, the, the, the lady at the BBC or in England, Issa, I think her name is. I mean, they actually know cricket. They played the game. That's a fair point. Kate yeah. Fitzpatrick was an actress. An actress, yeah. Now, she might have known a bit of cricket, but I don't think she could match it with Ian Chappell, Tony Gregg, Bill Laurie and uh, those sort of guys. But um, but the, the fact that Yarn Event you know, caused so much consternation mm. because she was a woman and had that job. And she was um, pretty. And she, she was beautiful, beautiful, the most beautiful yeah. eyes too, uh, yeah. Yarn Event. Well, there you go. We uh, we pay tribute to Gerald Stone. Yes. Uh, he was a, uh, a big force in Australian And uh, 60 Minutes media. has been going now since 1978 in Australia. And I think the ratings are still, still good. pretty good. Yeah, still good. Although with COVID, they haven't been able to travel. So I think they're doing a lot of their stories mm. You know, through. Uh, uh, but the computer. travel is coming back, Tony. The travel is coming back. Well, that brings us to COVID, uh, Darren. And I wanted to mention that with uh, here in Victoria, we've had uh, three of the people involved in the hotel quarantine fiasco gone. Gone. Mm-hmm. Jenny McCarkles, Chris Eccles, and Kim Peak. We're still waiting for the findings of this inquiry. What I've noticed is that. Uh, there's this uh, um, person who works in the Premier's private office. I think she's his private secretary, mm. a lady by the name of Lizzie Ratcliffe. Right. Now, she hasn't been asked to give evidence at the inquiry, not asked for her phone records, not asked anything, really. Now, you would have thought that if any... I mean, at this stage, we've, there's no evidence that anyone made a decision. Well, this is rubbish. I mean, no decision like this will be made without the Premier's, uh, at least, nod his head. And he do so, I mean, you don't make decisions like this. You don't suddenly turn down defence personnel and bring in private security guards unless it has the, the Premier's imprimatur. So you agree with me that somebody made the decision? Because yes. a, a lot of money was spent too. You'd, Millions. You, you just don't spend that sort of money yeah. without a decision being made. Now, all of the ministers and you know people that outside of the ministry, like Graham Ashton, and uh, they don't know who made the decision. Yeah. Now, well, well, I mean, Ashton, we know, ex-police commissioner, he didn't want the police to be involved. He didn't want it to tie up his forces. So he was very happy when he got the word, presumably from the Premier's department or through the Premier to the Health, the health Minister, that don't worry, we've got private guards. Right? Whoever turned... I mean, they accepted and then turned down the Defence Department, seven, eight, nine hundred people. I'll go back to what I said weeks and weeks and months ago, probably even on, on the podcast. It was a worthy cause. It was done by the Labor government because there was an Indigenous firm out of Sydney, a private security firm, and they weren't even on the approved list down here. But somebody made the decision that, oh, that would be really worthy. That's, well, I, I, that's- I would dispute worthy, because if you're being offered Defence Force personnel for nothing, uh, yeah, 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 well, no, why would you want to spend any money because whatsoever? Because worthy, because it's, 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 because it's Indigenous. Because it's worthy for but the... But it's taxpayers' the, money. Yeah, I agree, I agree I agree. with you, but I, I, I use the word worthy in quotes because somebody in there said, oh, this will be good. It looks good to have an Indigenous company running it. Um, the word I'm getting, I may be wrong, was that when they hired them, they only had 78 employees. They needed 1,500 and got the rest of them off bloody WhatsApp or, WhatsApp or something. So I'm trying to find <coughs> who made the decision. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of working my way back, a bit like you would work... Well, okay, with- somebody might have made a decision... But the Premier must have approved it. 
Well, you, you I don't think spend fifty million bucks without the premier knowing. No, well, well, I actually think if you work your way back, you know, like you would work your way back to the Big Bang, you mm. know, bit by bit by bit, you go back in history, uh, and 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 you, uh, you know, what we do know is that Graham Ashton was told uh, at between one sixteen and one twenty two. So the decision was made prior to that time. And there's all that timing of the guy coming out of the uh, the premier's meeting and talking to somebody else, and then correct Ashton so, was called. If the meet, if the decision was taken prior to one sixteen, it points to the premier, mm. and it points. I mean, what I was told was that the premier has a private office with a private secretary. Uh, Lizzie Ratcliffe is the head of this private office. Now, if the decision was made outside of the ministers in that private office, that's would fit in with the timing of all that. Mm. Why would Lizzie Ratcliffe? Not be, be asked to appear before the coat inquiry. Well, I'll go back to something that I've been saying for decades. It's, it's, I call it the Watergate syndrome. It's not the offence, it's the cover-up. Um, if they had made this decision, a wrong decision to bring private guards in that weren't adequate, if somebody had owned up to it four months ago and said, we made a mistake there, we were wrong, we're now doing it differently, We'd be talking about something else now. But 800 people have died. And, and you, it's, I don't know, Watergate, the time they spend covering up, you know, uh, if, you, if you come clean and say, we stuffed it up, we, we, we done wrong, uh, it just makes so much sense. I remember once having a secretary years and years and years ago, and I said to her, look, if you, if, if you stuff something up, come and tell me. Because then we've got two heads to try and work out how to fix it, Rather than you spending three or four days trying to fix it and not, and then I have a harder time five days later. The inquiry is going to report on the 21st of December, mm-hmm. four days before Christmas. And it will be buried then in Christmas. Well, well, when you work out, when, when you sort of look at the timing of it, that's another thing that I don't like. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but admittedly, they, they give them fairness. The inquiry ha- found new evidence or got hints of new evidence, so they had to extend... The hearings, but four got... days before Christmas, right? No. No. Couldn't it be held over into January when everybody's well, that's, focused that's, okay, on? That's, that's up to us to push it out there in January. Well, that's our job. True, true. Uh, Daniel Andrews did say uh, in early July, "I am the leader of this government, and I take responsibility, and I have accountability for this." And all matters. Well, this is what he said. Yeah, we will wait. Do you see. do you think that he's done that? No, not at the stage. No, I don't. No, I think he. As I said, I think if he'd, if somebody had come out earlier and said we stuffed up, but we're not going to do it again, we've learned. Uh, it would be a different different time. Uh, I don't think this is the time for him to step down right now. We're still in the middle of, despite the fact we're easing up and things like that. I don't think he's going to step down. I think he's going to go on. Uh, the the latest poll. Well, yeah. Had him, you know, seventy yeah. percent approval rating. Yeah. So I'm the not, Victorians yeah. are not really too interested in all of the. I, the I, I think he'll go on. I think he should go on, but I don't think he'll. I think he'll probably stand down before the next election. It's been a grueling few. I mean, he's been a leader for a lot of years. It's been a grueling time, and I think probably he'll say it's time. Uh, then again, I, I'm not sure that um, that Mr. O'Brien's going to lead 
legend into the next election either. Well, I think it's damning against Michael O'Brien that given all of the issues that we've had, given... He, he can't lay a glove. Given the mess up, mm. yeah, he, he can't... Yeah. He's got no traction whatsoever. Well, I'd give you a hinch's hunch. If they go with what they're rumoured to be doing and replacing him with Smith, they're nuts. Oh, crazy. Nuts, because the guy is... He, he's just a... He's a sort of a... He's well, like, well, is that a rumour, is it? Is it? You, have you got that sort of uh, of any authority that that's what? A little bit, yeah. And I said, I did say to the people I talked to, I said, "You'd be nuts to do this," because the guy is um, uh, doesn't matter. He's a he, he's a self-serving. He, he reminds me a lot of Kennett of the nineteen eighties. Yeah. You know, people don't realise, and I think I'm right in saying this, Geoffrey Kennett only ran for one term, didn't he, as Premier? No, no, he, he, he became Premier in 1992, mm. and he lost in 1999. Oh, that so long? that's well, okay. seven years. Yeah, so I think it was oh, okay. two elections yeah, yeah, right. that, that I, I do that remember, right, I was writing columns in those days, and, and I said, Brax... You know, he ended up on his Brack side. I didn't dream, but most people didn't, that, that, that they could He, not he was probably one of the better premiers that we've had, uh, Steve Brax. Mm. Uh, he, he won on his own right against Kennett in 99. He didn't sort of come in like John Brumby did no. on the coattails of uh, Steve Brax. Darren, do you think that Victorians will ever know who decided to yes. use private oh, security? Yes, in the next... It's going to take a while, but in the next couple of months, A, with the the, 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 uh, the report from the inquiry and other stuff, it will come out, and we will, we will have proof. We will. And, uh, and you can sleep safely at night again. Well, we can sleep safely now because we've got zero, zero, zero cases. Yeah. Have you resumed life uh, as normal? Like No, I'm, I'm still doing it. I'm actually, I, I, I'm lying a bit because I did go and have, uh, went out lunch uh, yesterday with friends, but uh, mostly I'm just doing the same thing. You know, staying at home. You, and this is what's going to happen to people. People start... I've read some stories about this. People saying, oh, I don't think I want to spend that much money at a restaurant anymore. We've been doing it at home. So they think, gee, is that worth it? Uh, so people's lives have changed. And I think people are becoming more frugal. And suddenly think, oh, geez, that's a lot of money to spend in a restaurant or a bar. I might just stay at home. You know, if you can... For the price of a glass of wine in a restaurant, I can have a bottle of wine at home, almost. And so... I think that's going to change people's attitudes a lot. It's going to take a long time for people to get right back into the swing of it, if they ever do. Well, I've heard that, uh, you know, people aren't visiting. Like, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day and said that uh, when, when, when COVID restrictions were eased, she expected, uh, you know, family and stuff to go to visit her parents. And no one went there. And they're, they're out. It's a learned thing to mm. be... Visiting, doing well, things, you know people be active. Of, people accuse me of having a Stockholm syndrome because I haven't changed. I'm sticking with the old ways that I learned during COVID. But I mean, this week, recent weekends, people are now starting to get in their cars and go and visit in other towns. But uh, I, I think we're going to be far more cautious. Into the new year. Uh, unusual for you, Darren, because I remember you as you know you were the guy out and about. You were the went to first nights wherever yeah. you, you were always in the paper wherever any any media event was happening. You were there. Yeah. You've changed. Yeah, I have changed. I I when they brought in the curfew, I said it doesn't fuss me at all. I never go out at night. 
You know, if if somebody wanted, even before COVID, I guess, if somebody wanted to have dinner, I'd say, no, let's have lunch. You know, so, um, so you're in bed early? <laughs> no, no, I come home and, no, I don't go to bed about midnight, but I, I, I do Twitter, I read, I write. I, I'm still, I'm, I'm 40,000 words into a new book. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm working still. But well, I, you've got amazing energy and a stamina and, uh, <laughs> and, a, and a work ethic like no one I've ever met. It's uh, quite, quite, quite amazing. You obviously enjoy it too. I do, I do, I do. You know, I, I, I cannot conceive ever retiring. You know, I'm a drop dead over this typewriter. You know, um, I, and that's, I've said once before, my dad retired at 62. He spent the next 32 years in God's waiting room. And I watched his life just dwindle, get smaller and smaller, and doing the daily crossword was his was his big thing. And I was I'll never. What did be your like dad that. actually do? What sort of work? Oh, he had everything. He, he he was a taxi driver. He was a bus driver. Uh, he was a jack of all trades. He was he owned a milk run for a while, which I used to go on every day with him. Uh, he owned a grocery store. Uh, he used to call himself a jack of all trades, you know, and uh, very clever with his hands. You know, he used to, made all our when we were kids. He made all our toys out of wood or little t- wooden trucks and stuff like that you know. so he retired because he wanted to yeah 60 well i think he's made redundant no, no he just at 62 he was tired to retire and then he used to say to me i mean once he said oh 93 not out boy not a bad innings but it, a third of his life he'd done nothing he used to wear holes in our carpet from scuffing his feet on the carpet. And did he ever tell you, oh, Darren, I made a mistake No, uh, retiring? No, no, never saw it. No, oh, when I first said I was going from New Plymouth to Christchurch, after two years in New Plymouth at a newspaper man, I said, I'm going to live in Christchurch. He said, why? He said, you're making quite good money. You should stay here and retire early. <laughs> I'm 17, you know. <laughs> what, did he, what did he think, you know, because he lived a long life, so he would have seen the success that his son had, mm. uh, how famous his son had become in Australia. What did he think about it? Oh, he's very proud. He's always very proud of that. You know, you know, you know. Um, I had to laugh when I did uh, This Is Your Life, right? They had all my ex-wives come out on stage. Well, that's time. what I remember about that, <laughs> all of these ex-wives yeah. coming hand, out hand together, hand. smiling. Yeah, <laughs> and then my dad came out, right? And they said, will he be okay by himself? I said, don't worry, and Darren sees him. He'll just jump out of his seat and grab him. So don't worry about that. But my dad obviously had rehearsed and rehearsed. For some reason, he wore his war medals <laughs> to come out on my This Is Your Life. <laughs> Proudly wore his war medals, uh, which I now own. Um, but he walked out on, on this TV set and he stood there and he looked straight ahead and he said, I'm very proud of you, son. Love, Dad. <laughs> He'd rehearsed it and rehearsed it. I'm very proud of you, son. Love, Dad. <laughs> uh, did you have any inkling at all that they were doing that? This no, is your life. No, you don't. Um, how, how did they surprise you? Uh, Where did they, they catch you? Okay, they, they, did, they, they're very clever. They're very clever. And once they have surprised you, they confiscate your mobile phone, so you can't phone anybody to see if they're coming on the program. And they, they put leave somebody with you all day, so you can't run around. What they did was they said to me, they called me up and said, look, I've got a publicist to call me up and say, I've got a favour to ask you. Rhonda Birchmore, who's a dear friend of mine, Rhonda's launched a new single in in London and uh, we'd just like to get a little bit of a grab of a televised of her being interviewed uh, in, in Australia about the new single. 
So would you do it? I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. I'm, I was on 3AK at the time, right? So Rhonda comes in and sits down in, in there, and starts to read his single, and there's a cam camera shooting all of us, so I understood because it was for her promo, right? And then for some reason, I should have twigged, she got me up and said, come and have a dance. So here's Rhonda and I dancing in the buddy radio studio, and then I sat down again, and then Mike Munro walks in. With his book. With his book. And I said, ah, <laughs> oh. I looked at him, hello, Mike. I said, oh, Rhonda, have we got a surprise for you? Because I tweaked, it was her. I said, ah, oh, and it all started to fall in place. I said, have we got a surprise for you? And Mike said, no, dear, it's a surprise for you. <laughs> and I said, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and what do you remember? I mean, I, I remember your ex-wives coming out, three of them. I think there's four now. Is, is well, there no, right? three, three of them, and Linda came out too as my ex-fiancee. She oh, was right. there as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you remember? Who, who did they go back into the past to collect and see you? That uh, I, I don't know. I, I think. Oh, I think they managed to get my address book from my secretary. Yeah, that's how they did it. So they could go to my black book and find the phone numbers, and the names of all those people. But I had no had no clue. Uh, at all, there was not a, even when I had Rhonda Birchmore in my studio, I had no clue it was me. You know. And then they they take your phone, and so you have no idea. When it started, uh, they mentioned Lana, and she didn't turn up. My first wife, and then they mentioned somebody else. I thought this is going to be a bloody short show. And I mentioned Jackie Weaver, and she didn't turn up. And I thought this is going to be a bloody short show. And then my sister Barbara walked out, and then they all walked out together. So it was. It was very sweet. It was lovely. Oh, there you go. Mr. Right. Hinch, thank you very much Talk for your time. Talk to you soon. Time.